Are you ready to take your career to the next level? This is IISC's Michael Hughes, and earning a master's in engineering management from the University of Louisville can strengthen your leadership skills and open new career opportunities in just 10 courses. In UofL's fully online program, take just one course at a time whenever it's most convenient, making it easy to balance life and education. All you need is a bachelor's in a STEM field. Six Sigma Black Belt certification available and no GRE is required. Learn more about this online 10-course master's program at louisville.edu online. This is Problem Solved, the IISE podcast, where we talk to industrial and systems engineers about their work, ideas, and solutions. Welcome, one and all, to another episode of Problem Solved, the IISC podcast. I'm David Brandt, Web Managing Editor for the Institute of Industrial and Systems Engineers and a producer on Problem Solved. In this episode, we're focusing on the highs, lows, and best practices behind technical communications, how engineers can be effective communicators within their organization in working with both fellow engineers and non-engineers. Joining us for the discussion are Elizabeth Gentry, PhD from the University of Louisville, and James Swisher of Hawkeye Business Solutions. Elizabeth is an assistant professor of Industrial Engineering and Director of the Master of Engineering and Engineering Management online program at the University of Louisville. She received her black belt in Six Sigma from the Institute of Industrial and Systems Engineers and teaches yellow, green, and black belt Six Sigma classes. Dr. Gentry also serves on the Board of Directors for the Society of Health Systems and the Institute of Industrial and Systems Engineers Young Professionals. James Swisher is President of Hawkeye Business Solutions, a small process improvement focused consulting firm with more than 25 years of experience as an industrial engineer and senior leader, James has learned the value of clear communication and improving performance in leading people. In addition to being committed to continuously improving his communication skills, James is a licensed professional engineer and Lean Six Sigma Black Belt. Elizabeth and James, my thanks to both of you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. I'm really excited to be here. You are tied for first as my favorite podcast host <laughs> with Ira Glass. So I'm, I'm honored to be here. That's a tall order, and I greatly appreciate the compliment. I really do. <laughs> yes, thanks, David, for having us. I'm really excited to talk about this. Well, good deal. For the record, I've witnessed both of you present at various IISE conferences and training events, as I'm sure some of our listeners have as well. Uh, so I guess what I'm saying is, is that I know when you're lying to our audience and I'm going to call you out on it. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, but but let's, let's start this conversation from the angle of the college student or young professional who perhaps hasn't gotten the message yet that communication skills are critical, not just in their academic careers, but also throughout their professional life. Uh, so my first question being how early on in your academic or professional engineering careers, did you recognize the need to be an effective communicator? Well, I'll, I'll start us off if that's okay, Elizabeth. Yes. Um, I, <laughs> thanks. Um, you know, for me, it was almost immediate as I, uh, as I came out of college and started in the working world. Uh, I went to work right out of college for the department of defense and uh, within a few weeks, I noticed that um, the folks who got the most attention and who were starting to work their way up the ranks were the folks who were the best presenters. And in the, in the role that I had, um, you know, it was incumbent on us to do research and then present that research to, to senior leaders in the organization. And the people who were best at conveying their message were the people who wound up being promoted over time. And so it became obvious to me right away that I really needed to learn a lot more about how to communicate effectively. And 
agree. Um, mine um, realization about how effective communication is so important is when I got out of college and started working full time at Christus Health in Dallas. I realized that, OK, I'm going to be presenting to non-engineers for the first time and I need to be able to effectively communicate or my projects are not going to succeed. Um, they're, my points are not going to get across efficiently. So it's really important that I learn how to effectively communicate with a variety of different backgrounds. Was the intimidation level pretty high right away at the beginning where when you're first making those inroads and you're learning that who you're, you're learning about the different types of people you're going to be communicating to, was it a tall hill or even a mountain that looked like uh, that you'd had to, that you had to climb uh, to become a, an effective communicator. It, it looked like Mount Everest to me. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was very intimidating for me right out of school. Uh, I remember uh, when I was in, in DOD, uh, we called those people who were really good at, at giving presentations briefers because mm-hmm. they could give a briefing. And, uh, and I said, well, I'll never <laughs> be a briefer. <laughs> I'll, I'll just, I, I'm never going to be able to advance. I'm going to be stuck doing analysis and somebody else will present it. You know? <laughs> uh, but in time I was able to tame that intimidation and work on it and work on it and work on it. And, and eventually I think I got a little better. So, um, yeah, it, <laughs> but it does take time and it takes, um, it takes the will to, to let that intimidation be there, but not let it stop you from moving forward. I agree. I was really intimidated at first, um, mostly because I hadn't had the experience and you really need just the experience and you learn from that. One of the things that I did when I first started um, at Christus and I had recently just moved to Dallas too and not knowing anybody. And so on Wednesday nights, I would actually go to a communications um, group where we would give presentations on random things like our favorite food or favorite baseball team, things like that. But it really helped. Um, me to feel more comfortable with talking to a variety of people because I don't even think there was any engineers in that communications group on Wednesday night. And so it really helped me to feel more comfortable when I went into work. So to kind of jump off that idea of having a group to work with, did you have role models or mentors, be it professors or managers that you first worked with that you looked to when it came to improving your own communication skills, be it oral or written? I can start this one. Um, I think that I still have mentors to help me with communicating because I always want to improve. Um, Larry Aft is a great one. Um, I remember when I first started teaching Six Sigma for IIC in 2016, um, I read my reviews and I was like, oh my goodness, after my first class. And he was like, that was your first class. You're going to improve. And I now I always read my reviews and I always want to know what can I do to improve improve. Um, even though I've taught like almost 46 Sigma classes now for IIC, I still know that every time I can continuously improve. Yeah, I, I completely agree with Elizabeth. Um, it's, it's really all about um, finding those mentors that, um, you know, that you can rely on <laughs> to give you honest feedback. Yeah. Um, and then, and then also getting that anonymous feedback too, you know, uh, surveys are a great tool to help you um, get sort of the brutal truth about <laughs> what you're doing well and maybe where you can improve and just having that commitment. That's the cool thing about being an industrial engineer. I think we're all committed to continuous improvement. So we just treat communication the same way. It's, it's just something else that we can continue to improve upon every day. 
I will give a shout out to uh, early in my career, I had a mentor uh, who I don't work with anymore and don't see as often as I would like, but he was, he was a huge influence on me. He was one of the first people that I realized that the skill of being a great communicator may be the most important skill you can have. It supersedes almost any technical skill. You know, you can, you can find folks to help you do the technical work, but to communicate that work and to turn it into action, that's really a leadership skill. And, um, you know, my, my friend Sam really taught me that early in my career. And I thank him immensely for that and, and really appreciate his mentorship early on. So this next question, I sort of have the opposite problem coming from newspapers and journalism into industrial engineering uh, about 15 years ago, being able to write articles about industrial engineering and industrial engineers. I didn't know what I was walking into. I wasn't entirely sure how to effectively do that myself. Um, A lot of it was writing case study after case study for the magazine. But uh, by and large, I've I've learned over time uh, more about the subject matter and being able to write about it uh, to an audience full of engineers. So my question here is, as engineers yourselves, what are the biggest challenges you've discovered over time in communicating with non-engineers like myself? Do you... uh, do you also have any trouble with other engineers despite sharing similar knowledge backgrounds? This reminds me of an example when I was teaching a Greenbelt Six Sigma class. Um, there was this lady um, in her probably upper 50s and the sweetest lady, one of the sweetest ladies I've ever met. Um, she was an RN and she had been an RN for a while. She's very skilled Um when everybody was talking about their skills, people would say she's one of the best RNs in our hospital. Um, so very skilled at what she does, very sweet. But I was teaching the math part in the Six Sigma Greenbelt section, and she came up to me on the break and said, Elizabeth, I am very scared and terrified of this. I don't know if I can continue on. And I said, I'm going to work with you step by step. Um, we're going to go through it very, very simply. I'm going to take our time with it. So I think that that opened up my eyes to realize that a lot of times people are scared of the math and the statistics. And so you don't want to overwhelm them with the math and statistics when you're giving the presentation. Um, So something that I realized early on is know your audience, um, prepare the presentation for who you're speaking to. I think that's awesome advice, Elizabeth. Uh, and and I, I think <laughs> uh, for me, one of the challenges with with early on, particularly communicating to non-engineers, was being a little too enamored with my own technical <laughs> prowess. <laughs> you know, feeling like I need <laughs> feeling like I need to uh, show all of my work. You know, it's sort of like when you come out of uh, out of your bachelor's program. You're used to showing all your work <laughs> on your uh, on your exams, and so you feel like uh, you need to spend half the presentation showing how you arrived at the conclusion, instead of really getting right to the conclusion and then answering questions about how you got there if folks have them. And uh, I think I think Elizabeth's just right on the right on the nose in terms of. Uh, knowing your audience. So if you've got uh, a lay audience who really just wants to make a decision, then boy, just get right to the conclusion and be able to answer technical questions if they come up, but give them time to process the conclusion and make a decision. If you've got a more technical audience, you know, maybe you do need to spend a little more time with the background of how you arrived there. (laughs) But at the same time, 
you know, I think for us as, as IEs, it's all about making things better. It's all about change. It's all about driving improvement. And so we never want the conversation to end with how elegant a solution we had. We really want the conversation to end with what are we going to do next? And I think it's trying to keep the conversation moving toward that. That's important, regardless of the audience. Well, and I think that kind of scratches the surface of the next question, which is what's the impact of a great communicator on an engineering project or team or in a training session? And simultaneously, what's the impact of a poor communicator? Boy, that's that's a great question. And yeah, I think in terms of, of, a, of a great communicator, I think a great communicator is like a great leader. They, they motivate and inspire. So if, if you're able to communicate your message, it motivates somebody to do something or it inspires them to dream bigger or to do something that they haven't ever done before. So I think that's the value of, of great communication. I guess on the flip side, <laughs> maybe a poor communicator has the opposite effect. Um, you know, if, if the communicator, if the message can't be heard for the static, so to speak, <laughs> then nobody's ever going to do anything different. Nobody's ever going to take that next big step. So I think we have to, we have to try to clear out all of that, um, all of, all of that uh, flotsam and jetsam that gets in the way <laughs> of the message and make sure that the message gets through so that people can, can really move on to the next step. What do you think, Elizabeth? I think of the Demaic methodology in Six Sigma when David asked this question, if you're not communicating clearly through each of the steps of Demaic, then your project is not going to succeed in the long term. In fact, it might not even make it out of the defined phase because you might be trying to solve something um, totally different than what you were planning to because you didn't communicate clearly in the defined phase. And I think it's so important just to be clear um, and know who your audience is throughout the whole um, methodology as well. That's a that's a really good point, Elizabeth. I I like that point that if you if you can't communicate clearly in the defined phase, you really can't get much further in the rest of the project. If you if you don't know what the problem is and can't communicate the problem, how can you ever solve it? That's that's a great point. Yeah, uh, Elizabeth. A few minutes ago, you brought up the. RN that you worked with who was freaked out by the math. Um, I find that as my career's grown beyond just writing and editing for newspapers, I've evolved uh, clearly into a podcast producer. I've evolved on becoming uh, a web designer, a coder, a photographer, all these multimedia skills that if you had asked me at 22, 23, I was going to be needing to develop, uh, I would have laughed in your face and said, no, I'm going to be a newspaper guy forever. And that's the way it is. <laughs> um, a lot of what's intimidating in broadening my horizons or for anyone who's broadening their horizons is that level of information or the volume of information you're getting at any one time. And sometimes you can feel a little bit overloaded. So do engineers often run the risk of creating or causing what's referred to often as analysis paralysis by overloading information onto a team or audience and maybe even upon themselves? I think so. Like James was talking about earlier, when you first get out of undergrad, you're used to showing all of your work, even if that's many, many pages of mini tab output. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that. Sometimes that's hard to break, especially when you're um, a new graduate um, starting your first job. You want to prove to your boss that you know how to do every single skill and mini tab and <laughs> everything. <laughs> and that's not a good way to go because 
um, your boss might not be an engineer. Um, they might be, but they might not be. And who you're presenting to, at least one person in there is probably not an engineer. In fact, the majority of them aren't. And so you don't want to overload them with all of this analysis. They might not even know what a p-value is. And so you need to, again, know your audience, which is something that I had to learn right away. What do you think, James? Uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, th- I think <laughs> um, the temptation for me has always been to provide more information rather than less. And that's a hard habit to break. But a lot of times for audiences, particularly today, um, people people want bite-sized bits of information relatively quickly. Um, folks are, are used to a, a digital world where they can look anything up uh, immediately Um you know, read a headline, read a tweet and, and get the gist of the story. And so it's hard for us when we want to write, you know, the <laughs> three page article instead of just the headline, uh, when oftentimes the headline would be sufficient to helping folks make a decision. And that's something that I, I try to really push myself to come back to, to say, what's, what's the minimum amount of information that this group needs to make a decision or to take the next step that they need to take in the process and try to keep it to that. But boy, it's a challenge. (laughs) You've done all this work. You've done all this work. You want people to see it. (laughs) Is a lot of that sort of trying to decipher between the vital versus the trivial? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Just because there's a lot of different analysis and approaches that you can go and you want to show, like James was saying, you want to show everybody what you've done. And the thing is, I think that people are on the microwave uh, mindset now where they want everything immediately. Like if they order something from Amazon, they want it that day or the next day. Same thing when you're giving them proposals. They want just a short, um, what is this about? I don't want to spend three pages just reading it i'm just going to read it in two or three paragraphs or less and so i think that yeah you're, you're actually talking about the entire demise of my newspaper career uh, <laughs> right there in a nutshell um and I, and I love the reference of the the microwave mindset i've never heard that before but that's absolutely fitting to what you're talking about <laughs> Have you ever been part of an engineering project or team and wished you were calling the shots? This is IISC's Michael Hughes. The online master's in engineering management at the University of Louisville can expand your career opportunities and prepare you to take leadership roles in just 10 courses. Classes cover topics like engineering operations, financial management, and more. You can also earn your Six Sigma Black Belt certification. All you need is a bachelor's in a STEM field, and the drive to take your career to the next level. No GRE required. Make your next career move with this online program at louisville.edu slash online. When it comes to live presentations, whether to a project team, employees, or at a conference, what's your path from brainstorming to execution? Elizabeth, you brought up applying to MEC a minute ago. What's that path like for you? And can you provide an example? So in the define phase, which is the first step of DMAIC, um, one of the first things that I I do is figure out who my customer is, who my audience is. And one of the things that Six Sigma teaches you, in fact, usually the first question on the test is, what is the major focus of 
Six Sigma and it's improving the needs of the customer or the wants of the customer. And that's the first thing that I do. Okay, who am I going to be presenting it to? Um, a couple of months ago, I was looking at some COVID-19 data and for a hospital and I wanted to know who's the audience is this going to be, is this going to be a group of analytical people or is this going to be a group of um, healthcare people who just want to know, okay, what are, what are the facts that I'm looking for? Things like that. And so that was the first step that I did was who's my audience? Who am I making this presentation for? Well, I couldn't have answered that uh, better myself. I I completely agree with Elizabeth. The the first thing that I think about is who is the audience? Um, That's the first step in the path is what, who's the audience and and what's the value proposition for them? What are they trying to get out of this presentation or this, or this communication? You know, it doesn't always have to be a formal presentation. It could be a hallway conversation. (laughs) What is it that they, they need to get out of this? You know, what, what's the goal of the conversation? Is it just chit chat? Or do they need something? And what is it that they need? So uh, I think that you know, she's right on target. Um, and I, you know, for me, thinking of an example, the one that really came to mind for me was working on wait times in an emergency room and the difference between presenting that work to the stakeholders who work in the emergency room to get their feedback on, can we try this? Will this is this an opportunity for us to do something different that might improve the process? Versus presenting that same project to a group of other industrial engineers at the Engineering Lean Six Sigma conference. Well, those are two very different groups. You know, <laughs> the stakeholders want to know want to know what are the ideas and things that we can do next to change the process, and they want to have really detailed conversations about how do we do that. The the folks at the conference really want to know more about the technical aspects of what worked and what didn't. (laughs) And so, you know, it's, it it really is uh, the same content with a very different audience produces a very different presentation. So uh, I think starting, starting with audience first and, and as Elizabeth said, with what, what their value proposition is. And this sort of bleeds into my next question, which is how would you describe a, quote unquote, high quality presentation. Um, What are sort of the universal truths you look for regardless of subject matter? Uh, What should the engineer aim to achieve in giving a presentation? I think definitely being clear and focused um, to the point um, to what your audience wants to hear. So again, going back to what we were just talking about, knowing your audience and what the focus is um, for the audience. What's what does the audience want to hear? And then <laughs> I also think with presentations, um, don't make it boring because you'll quickly lose the audience. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> That's good advice. That is good advice. <laughs> you know, the, the three terms that came to my mind in, in turn, you know, what, what defines a good presentation? The first is knowledge transfer that, that you were able to take something that somebody didn't know and transfer it. The second is understanding that people haven't, you know, not only did that not, that knowledge get transferred, but they, they can process it, understand it, synthesize it somehow. And then the third for me is inspiration that, that, that presentation, that communication inspired somebody to do something, whether it's to change a process or try something they've never tried or, you know, just to uh, just have a better day. <laughs> uh, so, I, yeah, I, I'd like to leave every communication with some inspiration. Based on my experiences and seeing each of you present live at various conferences and training opportunities with IISC, 
you each have your own unique styles and presence in your presentation skills. Do you each feel you have cultivated your own presence or even a persona, if you will, for presenting live, or are you still a work in progress? And does it happen to vary by audience to audience? Wow, that's that's a great question and a nuanced question. So <laughs> uh, I might give like four different answers that, can, that contradict one another here. But <laughs> Go for it. All right. Well, I think, you know, for me, I think um, I think my style is pretty well set at this point. But it, that doesn't mean that I'm um, never going to change. You know, I think I'm a work in progress on everything in life, <laughs> including my communication skills. So hopefully I'm still trying to get better. But I think a lot of my kind of core style is set. And you know, maybe the more nuanced piece of that is, you, know, you mentioned a persona. I think for me, a lot of my early development in communicating and presenting was to develop a persona and, and to sort of live in that persona um, as a way to avoid some of the intimidation. So, you know, you can, <laughs> you can do things when you're not yourself. If you're, if you're playing a role, it's a little bit easier. <laughs> well, that's why, sometimes. that's why I ask because I, you know, you'll read interviews with uh, actors and comedians. I remember reading an interview with Will Ferrell where he talks about how he's just not on all the right. time, you know, so when people see him around town or what have you, or he's with his family and everybody's kind of looking for Ron Burgundy, Ron Burgundy's right. not there <laughs> because right. that's at times it's a persona he uses for his performances and not so much, you know, <laughs> just a mirror image of Will Ferrell. Absolutely. So, so that's kind of, I feel like that's kind of the same thing. That's a great example. That is a great example. And I think for me as a natural introvert, I had to use that persona to get in front of people and not be nervous. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the, the wonderful thing is that over time, I don't have to rely on that persona so much anymore. I'm, I'm able to let my natural personality come through more and more as I become more confident speaking to people and, and, and working with larger audiences and, and just communicating in general, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or with a group. So I don't have to rely on the persona so much anymore, <laughs> but if I, if I get nervous, I still have to break it out every once in a while. <laughs> and I'll, and I'll confirm too, that oftentimes when I'm presenting live or if I'm doing this podcast, for example, my voice yeah. is more of an announcer voice than I am when I'm in conversations just with friends sure. or who, or, or whoever's with me. Having said that though, that's how I feel. The people who know me probably think that my voice is just as loud and obnoxious <laughs> as the voice you're hearing right now. So that's again, a little bit more of a persona when I'm doing this kind of work, but in person, I don't, I, I'm guess, I guess I'm really thinking now, yeah, the voices aren't really all that different, but the intent is different. Right. <laughs> the intent's yeah, very different. Yeah. Elizabeth, what about you? Uh, you have a secret superhero identity when you speak or what's your deal? I wish I should come up with a superhero identity when I speak. <laughs> but I agree with James. I'm also an introvert. And so I have to, sometimes I do get nervous. And um, Larry Apps said one time when I told him, a few weeks before that I was really nervous about teaching a particular class. And he said, um, if you don't get nervous, that means you don't care. And I really like that. And that stuck with me. He probably told me that four years ago at this point. Um, but that really stuck with me. If you're not nervous, that means you don't care. And, and you can channel that nervousness. What I do is I read over my notes 
um, make sure I'm understanding everything. Um, I think a lot of my nervousness comes from what if I don't understand something that I'm going to be presenting or going over. And I think just making sure that I prepare um, the night before, the day before and understand everything I'm going to be talking about, um, that helps a lot with it. Um, but his comment will probably stick with me the rest of my life. If you don't feel just a little bit of nervousness, then that probably means you just don't care. So I liked that a lot. No, that's, that's great advice. No, absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's terrific advice. But nervousness actually segues into the next question, which is for the benefit of our audience who really wants to improve their communication <laughs> skills, share a case or two about your worst personal examples of poor, perhaps confusing communications. <laughs> what has been your worst experience and what did you learn from it? To be fair, I will also share mine once you two have shared one of each. <laughs> I can go first just to uh, break the ice. Okay, so um, <laughs> when I was working at Krista's house, um, I was, again, more of a new graduate. And like James was saying, I liked to give all the data that I had. So if it was a bunch of mini tab outputs, I would want to put it all in my presentation. Of course, we all know that we quickly learned that that's not good to do. But I did that in one of my presentations and I was presenting it to about 50 people. And with most people in there not being engineers, maybe one of the 50 people were. And I talked about p-values and um, the Tukey tests, which are great things to talk about, but um, they didn't know what a p-value was or a Tukey test was. And I quickly learned that they thought that I had great analytics, but they weren't sure what all that meant. And so after that, um, my manager at the time, who was really great, um, worked with me on um, how to put p-values into the presentation when they were needed and when they were important, but also how to explain them to somebody who might not have had a statistics test um, and might not know what a p-value is and explain why that is significant to that audience. Why do they care about the p-value? Why is this important for them to know? So I quickly learned that. It made me feel kind of stupid and humiliated that um, I was explaining all this and I felt like I wasn't getting the point across, which I wasn't. And um, But that's something that I always remember and it really helped me to understand I need to know my audience too. James, what about you? <laughs> That's a great, great story, Elizabeth. Thanks for sharing. I'll, I'll share two stories. So one, my most humbling and then the second's my funniest. So uh, the most humbling experience I had in communication was uh, as a high school senior, I had an opportunity uh, for a leadership scholarship and I had to go before a panel of uh of actually uh, military officers. And they asked me to articulate my thoughts on leadership. And I had no answer that was just <laughs> worthwhile, motivating. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't speak to leadership at all as a high school senior. I really didn't have any thoughts that I could <laughs> provide. And I could tell that I was bombing as I was speaking. You know, it was just one of those... I, maybe I should just stop here and, and thank them for their time and leave because I know, <laughs> I know I've done a terrible, terrible job. And, and like Elizabeth said, I think one of the keys to that was I didn't come to that prepared. Um, that was a real humbling experience for me. 
to know that the way that you get over the nervousness, the way that you um, that you do a good job is to come prepared to that communication. And, and I didn't do that in that case. And it was very humbling. <laughs> and I felt um, very, very immature and uh, very, very dumb. <laughs> so that was that was tough. Um, on the flip side, my funniest communication story, uh, happened when I was in college. And so, uh, I had just turned 21 and we had gone out with some friends and, uh, we were at a very loud bar and I said, you know, can I, can I get anybody anything to drink? And so somebody said, well, I'll have a fly swatter. And of course, you know, being just turning 21, I don't know anything about mixed drinks. And so I, I have no idea what a fly swatter is, but I guess, you know, I'll go order it. So I go to the bar and you know, very, very loud. And the bartender says, what will you have? And I say, I'll have a fly swatter. And he says, okay. And so he brings the drinks back and he hands me this drink. And it's all clear, you know, clear liquid and ice. And I was like, huh, it must be some kind of vodka drink. So I take it back to my friend and you know, hand it to him. And, and it's, you know, here's the fly swatter. And, uh, and I say, so what's in that? And he looks at me and says, what do you mean what's in it? <laughs> and I said, the, the drink, what's in it? He said, ice water <laughs> so, <laughs> so he had ordered an ice water i heard fly swatter i communicated fly swatter to the bartender the bartender heard ice water <laughs> and and in the end everybody got what they were looking for so <laughs> there you go <Wow. laughs> i like that <laughs> I don't know if any of my friends tried to pull that on me in college, but I, I but I was basically DD no matter what. So you would think it would have happened at one time or another. <laughs> All right. Well, since you shared yours, I'll share one of mine. Um, I was 25. I was a couple years into my full-time professional career, but I had already sort of moved up the ladder a little bit. And I was the assistant Metro editor for the newspaper I was working for. And part of that role was uh, having to work with the reporters in terms of uh, not just with their stories, but also with their schedules. And we were closing in on the holidays. So you're having to figure out, you know, which reporters need to work Thanksgiving, which ones need to work Christmas, which ones need to work New Year's Day, uh, so on and so forth. Because, you you know, a lot of people went off for obvious reasons. Well, somewhere in an email communication, I was trying to stress that this was my first year planning these and that I needed everyone to quote, bear with me. Well, problem was the phrase bear with me, bear is spelled B-E-A-R. My choice of spelling in that moment oh, no. was actually B-A-R-E. <laughs> And that's not exactly <laughs> a great message to send if you're A, an editor, uh, B, younger than all of the reporters you're working with. <laughs> so that was sort of my first mark of humiliation as uh, someone who is in a management role. And that has stuck with me for a long time. And I definitely pay more attention to how I write my emails, how I've spelled words in my emails <laughs> um, and really anything else that I write. Um, I'm, I'm a little extra paranoid and that's, that's the reason why, because those reporters and the Metro editor who was my boss uh, all gave me hell for it. Uh, they, 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 any chance they had uh, to say bear with me or bear in mind or anything involving that, that, that word. Um, they just kind of give me a look. It's like, yeah, we remember. Yeah. Yeah. A little, little young up, up and 
comer from, from good old nearby Piedmont College. Yeah, he, he, he was hot stuff then, but now it's at the bottom of the totem pole again. <laughs> so that, that, that kind of stuff will stay with you in this industry. So that's great. That's great. It, it reminds it reminds me uh, early on in my career, I was working with a gentleman named Brian and um, we would email back and forth quite a bit. And I emailed him one day and I accidentally transposed the I and the A in his name. So, you know, the headers, you know, brain. And then I asked him his question. And uh, so he sent me a message back. He said, I'm glad you finally acknowledged my superior intellect. <laughs> I have a couple of Brian's in which I think I've pulled the same error, but, uh, but I, I definitely, you know, once you do it once, you're just like, never going to do it again. Especially because right. you don't want their egos to be so high about it, you know? That's right. <laughs> kind of bringing everything to a close. We talked about this a little bit earlier, but what do you look for in registering feedback on your communication skills in the context that you're always trying to improve? Who do you go to to seek that kind of input? I think mentors are really important. Always have mentors that you can ask questions to. Um, Larry is a good resource for me. Cause um, Takeda, who's an ISC member, is also very um, helpful to me as well. But just reaching out to people and say, I presented it this way. I'm not sure. Um, what do you think about this? Um, do you see any room for improvement? And then as James and I were talking about earlier, we were talking about looking at your reviews um, whether it's conference reviews or class reviews, sometimes those are really hard to look at. And in fact, I was at a teaching conference um, and some people at a table nearby to me, I heard them talking about reviews and they said they always have a drink of wine before they start reading. <laughs> 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 so that can be a little nerve wracking and you have to take everything with a grain of salt. Some people can just be mad um, that they got a bad grade or something. But in the reviews, there's always some good um, that you can learn from and that you can improve from. I think. I think you're absolutely right. And it, I'm the exact same way for me that the anonymous surveys are sort of the the brutal truth, you know, the, the, the ones that you do have to have a drink of wine sometimes <laughs> before going through, but, but, but I think they're really helpful in, in giving you a good read, um, and an honest read of, of people's experiences. And, and I think you're right. Sometimes you have to throw out the high and the low values, <laughs> but, uh, but there's always something valuable from those. And then I couldn't agree more with, with also getting that feedback from, from trusted sources. So whether it's a mentor or a friend who's in the audience, um, you know, those are the folks who can really give you the nuances. They know you well, they know your normal style. So they know if you differed from your style and, and like Elizabeth said, you can ask them those questions like, well, if I'd done it this way, would it have been better? And, um, and they'll give you, you know, <laughs> your friends would give you that nice nuanced, uh, and kind advice, <laughs> uh, which I think it's having both sources is really helpful. I guess the lesson here is sip the negative reviews, but swallow the wine whole is basically what we're getting at. <laughs> That's right. A little bit of, a little bit of sugar helps the medicine. Go down. <laughs> well, there we go. There we go. On that note, I, I think there are a lot of great lessons and tips and even some best practices that uh, our audience hopefully will keep in mind, whether they're young in their careers or have become, you know, veteran status. And certainly everybody can benefit from this. So James and Elizabeth, I greatly appreciate you guys taking the time to talk to us about communication. And we uh, certainly look forward to seeing you guys at more of our events, conferences, training, etc. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. David. It was a pleasure, David. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Problem Solved, the IISC podcast, a production of the Institute of Industrial and Systems Engineers in Metro Atlanta. This podcast is produced by David Brandt, Keith Albertson, and Michael Hughes, and edited by David Brandt. You can listen to all episodes of Problem Solved and learn about sponsorship opportunities by visiting our website, podcast.iise.org. You can also learn more about IISE at the Institute's website, www.iise.org.